Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Hey everybody, welcome to The Next Reel. This is a special episode. Uh, Steve Sarmento, hello. Hello, Andy. Steve and I are here because, you know, back in our <laughs> in our member groups, we have had a lot of conversations with listeners of the show 
about licensing, about ownership of movies, uh, all of this sort of stuff. I, I know a lot of this kind of really, it's always been going on, but like when Amazon had that uh, situation come out uh, a few months ago where all of a sudden they're like, oh, all those movies that you bought from us, you don't actually own them. You know, all of this sort of stuff. So it's it's been a lot of a lot of things to talk about. And then now with like Warner Brothers releasing movies on HBO, it just puts us into an, uh, you know, an interesting time and place to talk about copyright and ownership and licensing and all these different things. And so, uh, Steve, you and I, we have a couple guests today that we're going to talk about, some experts in the field, which is very exciting. We have uh, Donald Smiley, first of all, an entertainment attorney out in L.A. Uh, good morning, afternoon, whatever. Yes, hello. <laughs> And we have Scott Martin, who is the owner of Archstone Entertainment. Yes, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Both of you have worked in the industry for a little while. Uh, is there anything about uh, kind of your expertise in this area? I mean, as far as distribution, as far as contracts and all that sort of stuff that uh, you want to just kind of give the listeners a little uh bit about. Donald, any uh, kind of backstory on you? I've been uh, practicing for over 30 years. Uh, primarily in the entertainment industry. I handle both litigation and transactional matters for almost anything you could think of in entertainment, from uh, gamers to filmmakers, television, uh, fine art. I do book deals. You know, I, I cover a lot of ground. Uh, I have worked with Artstone since their inception. I also arbitrate on behalf of the Independent Film Television Alliance, or IFTA. That's really about it. I mean, uh, I, I cover a lot of ground. When you say that's really about it, that's really a lot. That's <laughs> it really is. a lot. And Scott, the owner of Archstone Entertainment, what do, I mean, that's, you know, you're a distribution company, but I think there's a lot more to it than that, especially these days. How would you describe your background and, and what your role is today? Well, we started in international sales and that's, that is licensing, specifically what you're kind of uh, referencing today, uh, licensing movies worldwide in different territories. Uh, we also uh, produce and produce our own content. Uh, we, uh, I've, I've, I've direct, uh, acted, um, an actor and writer and, and those things. Uh, but our, our bread and butter has been sales and distribution kind of worldwide. Uh, and we've been doing that for, well, just over 10 years, just over 10 years. So, I mean, that's a lot of that's a lot of movies, too. I mean, that really keeps you busy and you're really you got your fingers in all of that. I mean, it, it is. It's, and, and you've I've seen uh, the industry change quite a bit and all of that. Some things are, are remain the same in, in general and, and from a business standpoint. But but, yeah, certainly the technology has changed. The industry has changed. And the main thing to remember is you just kind of have to adapt with it and change with it and see where the curve is and which direction that curve is going, I guess. Yeah, yeah. right, right. Steve and I uh, have a lot of <laughs> friendly arguments back and Fr forth. Friendly fisticuffs if we were in the same room regarding, <laughs> That's right. That's right. regarding Andy's physical media collection that he owns and the digital <laughs> movies that I know that I have bought that are, you know, short term. I don't, you know, have an illusion that I own them. I know I've bought a digital thing, whereas Andy is just adamant about he owns his movies. And we've we've gone round and round about this. And I think a lot of this was exacerbated by, you know, the, the shifts that we've seen that uh, here, even at the next reel, we've we've had a transition from going to see the movies in the theater to to streaming and looking at the changes that the studios have made it as audiences have been pushed into 
to streaming services a lot more, right, Andy? Uh, you know, okay. So I own movies, and I'm not I'm not <laughs> adverse to buying digital films, but there are certain ones that I like having uh, physically because you can't get them otherwise. And so True. I I'm I'm thrilled that physical media still exists because you can still find things that just aren't otherwise available. Right. So I guess in the realm of actually owning stuff, um, what do people actually own? when they buy a movie? Great question. As you know, it was, you would have a physical disc, right? And, or, or, or tape when it was VHS days, I guess. Yeah. Um, you had a physical thing that you could then resell and whatnot. Um, but also it, during that time frame, there wasn't the risk of that ending up online, like where a million people could watch it for free. That, mm-hmm. that didn't really exist then. Uh, the, the worst would happen is you would have a bunch of friends over to watch a movie and they would all kind of watch it for free. And so as the times changed and, and in a digital technology, you know, I, I it, when I would buy movies, I'd buy movies uh, to purchase them digitally. I always, I always did think it was strange because then I think, well, I'm, I'm I'm on iTunes right now, so that's where these movies are. But I also have movies over here on Amazon, but then I have movies over here also in other places. I don't have all of them in a single collection that I keep. And if something happens to one of these companies one day, they're gone, I guess. I don't I don't have them. So you really have to look at it more as a long-term rental. Uh, you can go back and, and uh, watch them whenever you want, not just for 24 or 48 hours. And it is a, it is a, it is, it is still a licensing thing. You're, you're being, you're licensing the rights to watch this movie for a given period of time, I guess, as long as the, as it's available on their, on their streaming service versus the actual physical disc. So my, my question is, we, we know that like, when you own something digitally, like with Amazon or, you know, iTunes, if, if that company goes under, that's, that's going to disappear. But is that distinctly different from the fact that there's not really a lot of places you can buy a, a VCR anymore to play a VHS tape? So if the manufacturers of VCRs are gone, is that, is that, you know, parallel to, uh, the digital provider of that movie going under? I no longer have the means to watch it in the format that I purchased it in. Sure. I mean, I, I think that the difference is, is that you, you physically have it, right. As, as opposed to it's on someone else's server somewhere, you don't know where. And if that server goes away, it goes away. It's not like just because people don't have many VHSs anymore, that someone's going to come around and collect all VHSs and yours is gone. I think that's the big, the big difference. Uh, and, and there are now, uh, from VHSs, even though, the quality is really not good. <laughs> there, there's a, there's, there's a market for VHS. There's people that they yeah. buy and sell them and they even have little, um, uh, swap meets and things where they go to go and you, and you can buy and sell these things. Um, so you still do have that ownership of something versus not. And, and let yeah. me jump in for just a second on this, uh, regarding ownership and that term because it's a loaded term <laughs> um and and first I, I do i do need to say that you know while i'm talking about this i'm not giving legal advice to anybody come find you and uh... <laughs> yeah well they can come find me uh and you know I, i'm i'm happy to to chat with them but uh i'm not trying to enter into any uh, legal relationships with anybody other than just you know comments on a theme sure uh but when we're talking about ownership it's a loaded term because 
generally speaking, the filmmaker owns their product. They made it. They filed a copyright for it. It's theirs. They then license it to someone like Scott to turn around and sell it or to then enter into licenses in specific territories or for specific medium. Sometimes, but not always, will someone who's purchasing a license want to buy the copyright along with it. It may depend. But the filmmakers typically are the owners. What happens is by the time the licensing happens and Scott licenses it to someone, say, in Germany, they've purchased a license generally for a specific period of time in specific medium to be able to then distribute that film. And that might be in hard copy. It might be digitally. It depends upon what the license is and how it reads. And they're restricted to that license. And Scott, I don't mean to step on your toes, but if you're, if you're selling something in Germany, you're not selling it in France. Uh, or the people who buy it in Germany are not buying it in France because the license is restricted. So, it, it, it's never really ownership. At best, it's an ownership of a license because the ownership of the actual film has stayed with its creators. And I just, I just wanted to make sure that everybody kind of understood that as a jumping off point because using the term ownership can mean different things. Well, and I guess like when I have a movie or whether it's a physical copy like a VHS or Laserdisc or DVD or Blu-ray or whatever it is, Generally, there's that message at the front that will say, you know, uh, this is you, you know, you've licensed this, this copy. And I believe the words, this copy is in there. So it's like, it's my copy of the movie. It's not an, I don't own the movie, but I own a copy of the movie, like a physical copy of the movie when it comes to the world of physical, uh, media. When it goes into the digital realm, though, um, ownership gets a little more, uh, you know, <laughs> unsure, I guess. At least people th- used to think that they owned it if they bought a movie from uh, from these online server services. But as you pointed out, if they go under, it's gone. And then Amazon, uh, you know, recently had you know uh, seems to make a lot of people mad last year when they said, "Oh, those that those movies that you quote bought, you actually don't own those, and we're going to take those off." Is it is there an issue with terminology? Do people just need to? adapt to that because i think in terms of of the consumer you know there's a you know an understanding maybe and maybe it's just because of the way the world had been of when you buy something it was yours really what you're getting is a license and the license can be exclusive or non-exclusive and obviously if they're selling a download to a million people you know everyone has a license to view what they've downloaded and it's non-exclusive of anybody else. You're not the only one getting it. Once you've received the download, it's yours to be able to view, but you don't have any of the other attributes that a copyright owner would have. You're not able to make copies of it and sell it. Uh, You're not able to do things like that. You're able, and through your license, you get to view it and that's it. And so. If that license through Amazon has been with a limitation, in other words, you get to view it as long as it's on our server uh, or something like that, you get to view it 
for a year before we replace it with something else, then that's the limit of what you've bought. And so if they take it down, you're out based upon however it is in the fine print they've written their license. So Donald, as a follow-up to that, so when I, if I'm Andy and I buy my physical media, I buy my Blu-ray, I've got a license. I can only watch it through that Blu-ray device. I, I don't have the right to take that off the Blu-ray and transfer it to my computer to watch it there or to my you know tablet or phone. Whereas when I buy something digitally, it seems like I can watch it in on my phone, my tablet, my computer, my smart TV. So there's different ways that I can watch that. So are the licenses different for digital that allows for different devices versus Blu-ray, which is I can access it only through my Blu-ray player? Again, uh, licenses over the years have evolved. One of the reasons that you might not see your favorite uh, 1930s film digitally is because when somebody signed an agreement with a studio or wherever, it did not include language like it's now ours and all media now known or however devised. And they may have just said, yes, we have theatrical rights. And they didn't have streaming rights at that point. They weren't in existence. Nobody had even thought of them. But that means to go back and be able to release it, you have to go back and negotiate a separate right that says, yes, I have theatrical, but now I would like streaming or I'd like video on demand or whatever that bundle of rights is. And you have to negotiate for those separately. It may or may not be worthwhile to go back out of millions of movies to go back and grab one to say that I want to distribute it as a download. Uh, There may be specific ones, you know, everybody wants to see Gone with the Wind. Maybe you've done that for that movie. But there were probably, you know, two, three hundred other movies released in 1939 that uh, people haven't bothered to go back and do that for. Yeah, there may be some that you can only see in some places and some that are available in other media. And that just depends upon the language of the license. And by the way, uh, uh, lessons have been learned since then. And and now all of the uh, agreements we do include that language Don was mentioning of now known or in the future or what other kind of rights. Anything that you could possibly ever watch this movie on will be included in in the agreements now. Moving forward in perpetuity. (laughs) So is that the reason we have some movies that are, you know, you can't find digitally? Like, you know, I was thrilled when I could find a, you know, a a physical DVD of Drop Dead Gorgeous because it wasn't released on Blu-ray. It wasn't streaming anywhere until Hulu showed up with it, I think, sometime last year. There's some films it seems like they hit DVD and there's demand for them, but is it that the distributor no longer exists? I mean, what might be the reasons that we don't have that aside from cost if there is demand? Because it seems like there's, you know, particularly for our generation, a lot of movies from the 80s that we remember watching, you know, renting from the video store, we can't find now on on streaming. Is that uh, that the issue of the license hasn't been updated? Uh, it wasn't streaming or? You know? I, don't, I don't see it as a production issue as far as creating copies. It it is totally a licensing issue. Uh, But there are other factors that come into play. You've had companies like ThinkFilm or others that have gone into bankruptcy or receivership over the years. And that means all of their films are tied up uh, and they may never get released. Um, 
or they get sold off to somebody who, uh, you know, maybe if they're lucky can put them all in a DVD sale to somebody and they might come out. But you don't know if that's going to happen. And so there are a lot of ways that films can sort of fall through the cracks and not get get where you want them to be. But generally yeah. speaking, it, it's a licensing issue. Yeah, and I, and I think as, as we see more um, of uh, each studio having their own platform and, and more of these come out rather than just two to three major, you know, SVODs, as more AVOD comes available, I think you'll start to see more of these older titles and more libraries out there. Uh, for people to watch, assuming it's not a licensing fee, uh, issue, then then I think, yeah, it, you'll start to see more of that in the next couple of years. So, uh, okay, so then let's talk about this whole thing with streaming and licensing around the world. I mean, Criterion Collection, I'm sure we've all heard of it. They have an amazing collection of films, both on physical media. media. They also have them playing on their Criterion channel, but it's only a domestic channel. I mean, I know licensing in other countries can be hard, it can be costly, but they're getting these licenses uh, with the growth of other streaming services like Netflix and everything overseas. Why do I mean, I don't and I, I, I know you neither of you probably want to speak specifically for Criterion, but why do you think companies like this might decide, you know what, we're only going to stick with domestic? Is it is it simply a money thing? Specifically for them, I, I don't I don't know. However, in general, we, when, for instance, when we sell titles, uh, we sell them to each individual country, and that's and it's starting to go more global. But for the most part, we sell them to each individual country, and you'll be selling them to different distributors in each country. So, there, for for a company that has hundreds, if not a thousand, titles spanning decades, they could be sold to countless distributors in each country who still have those rights. So to to try and then put that together could be a complete nightmare. Uh, and it's because you have each and every each and every territory. You can serve they could certainly geoblock if if something becomes if things become available more in one country than another. Another issue really is um, dubbing and subtitling. Yeah, that's really costly. And if you're going into any country that's not English speaking, then um, I mean, if you're thinking all of those titles, that would be really, really expensive to have to either dub, which some countries are are strictly dubbing, or subtitle if you can get away with it because it's cheaper. Uh, but still, all those titles added together would be really would be very expensive, and that's that would just be for one territory, for you know Germany for German, and then you you know think about every single country and all the different languages. That's a, that's a lot to do, and that'd be really expensive. And and I look at it as. And not specifically Criterion, but to some extent, a, a large portion of their films are all international when you're talking the United States. And so being able to pick up rights for one country, the United States, might be a lot simpler uh, as opposed to, as, as Scott's explained, trying to go country by country across the world. You're going to the biggest market, the United States, and you're picking up the films that aren't readily available in the United States, you're getting rights for those. And maybe, you know, perhaps that makes more uh, sense for them to be able to do. And, and, and along with that, um, to give you an example, we've been talking with an AVOD company and AVOD being an advertising on demand company to bring in titles and to kind of have our own uh, AVOD thing going. 
And when you're looking at the whole world in general, and, and I won't say which platform this is specifically, but it is a large one. Uh, and when you're looking at the whole world in general, the U.S. makes up just over, on this platform, just over 75% of the revenue when you add in the entire world. So so that's a huge territory, obviously. That's a big territory. So as Don was saying, it might make most sense to just acquire the titles for the U.S. because that's where you know a majority of your revenue is going to come from. And then probably a, a big dog like Netflix, again, we're just uh, making assumptions here, but because they have such an expansive grasp across media, they're able to say, okay, this is uh, a lot, because I know that they've been reaching a lot more into other countries and have a lot of programming within those countries, but then have also been doing like, I don't know, some form of sharing where, you know, I, I've seen a big influx just on my own Netflix server of films from India. And, you know, I don't know if they're seeing more of an influx. Like, I don't know if because they're able to kind of control these properties across the around the world, maybe they have an easier time dealing with that because they're kind of their own distributor in all these places. And and for a worldwide deal with someone like like a Netflix, they're going to it's going to be an exclusive deal. So it's theirs for the world. If it's not their own Netflix original, right? If they're picking up something and they want to do it for the world, it'll be an exclusive deal just just for Netflix. So then they they don't have to worry about which where it is available, where it isn't and where they can where where they can place it. Uh, where whereas other uh, when it's when it's just the U.S., they might pick it up just for the U.S., but it's 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 exclusive for SFA, but you can rent the movie on iTunes or Amazon or or buy it as we were just talking about long term <laughs> rental. <laughs> long term rental, right? Well, I think it's it's um, becoming more apparent about with particularly with streaming services. The international reach when you watch something like a an episode of WandaVision and you see that you've got like eight minutes of credits because what you'll you'll now see is all the, the credits for, if they've done the dubbing for all the different countries. And so where I normally get my credits in the movie ends, then all of a sudden I'll, I will get multiple screens of all the different countries. And I've started seeing that on the credits at the end of Netflix originals as well. So it's giving me that because normally in a theatrical release, it's for that country, whereas here it seems like that, you know, they've done a one package deal. And so you can see all the different countries that this has been uh, created or being distributed for right there in the credits for all that work that they've had to do in those different countries. And it's something that I've just noticed probably within maybe the past year or so that I, I hadn't really noticed before. And you can start to see, get the sense of that, uh, you know, all that work that needs to be done to get the titles into those different countries. It's much more transparent now, I think. And as Andy said, you start to see more as Netflix Netflix has broadened its reach. We start to see it in the the titles that are uh, that are available in, in something like like Netflix. That brings up an interesting um, uh, point, also regarding uh, regarding credits and stuff. I mean, you know. A lot of talent, uh, you know, whether it's uh, in front of the camera or behind the camera, have back-end deals with these projects. So, okay, Wonder Woman 1984, HBO Max, or Warner Brothers, I should say, made this decision to uh, release it day and date in theaters, limited, of course, here in the U.S., and on HBO Max at the same time, instead of just theaters. How does this start affecting contracts. I mean, obviously, I, I'm assuming uh, Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins, the director, both had back-end deals for points on on that particular film. Uh, how does that shake out? I mean, what happens? The first part of that is, is seeing the, the reaction of the agents 
when that happened uh, answers a lot of that, that mm. <laughs> it doesn't shake out well for the talent. <laughs> they, they part, a lot of part of those deals were, would be for the back end uh, participation. And when that goes away, it's all of a sudden, well, that was part of the, their compensation. Now you're taking away part of their compensation for doing it. I can see the argument on both sides, how that is moving forward is, I think it's sort of a remains to be seen. It's going to be very interesting. It's going to be very interesting how they do back end. Uh, back end on independent films is not nearly the, as lucrative. In fact, it's when, when doing deals with talent on independent films, you don't really see that as much as you did. But on studio level, things like that, it's still a very big part of it. And how that's going to go moving forward, who knows? I mean, maybe maybe it's part of the agreement where you know, there's, there's a back-end deal. If you decide to put it straight onto a platform, you, you owe this amount of money. That's a kind of a back and buyout, if you will. I don't know. I mean, it, it's, I think there's going to be a lot of creative, creative ways to do that. I would say a lot of this has yet to play out because mm. it's really been just in the last year with uh, COVID that you've had this day and date streaming and release in a the theater. And so most of the films that have been done that way uh, are still playing. And it, it's hard to know exactly how it's going to end up. I mean, theoretically, if it plays on HBO Max, and I know the various guilds have all looked into what residuals there might be to their performers for it playing on, you know, certainly on television. And I think they've also covered now uh, uh, the major uh, cable. Uh, and so assuming that's still all unionized, there, there's going to be some flow as if it was almost a made for TV movie on one hand, and perhaps a flow for residuals for the theatrical based upon theatrical. You might have dual participation, but it certainly has not been reported on yet, at least to my knowledge at this point, as to how that, that has worked out. And, and then you sort of have the, Netflix model, which has been widely reported, that they typically, not always now, but typically they buy it all out. Mm -hmm. And so there is no back end and you have no expectation because they've paid perhaps a, a bit of a premium uh, up front to turn around and say, this is all you're going to get. And so then they can play it wherever they want and not have to worry about that question. And so I think you may end up seeing perhaps more of that. Uh, but again, I, I think this is all, it's really come to the forefront in the last year or so, and I think it's still playing out. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's always puzzled me about the a business model like Netflix, because if, if something goes into the theater and I'm a huge fan and I go to see it in the theater multiple times, two or three times, I'm buying a ticket each time I see that. So that's revenue going to, I know, the theater and the all of that. But if something goes to Netflix, I can watch it 10 times and it doesn't cost me anything. And if I, if I never change, Netflix gets my money no matter how much I watch. So increased viewership profits them nothing from, from me, whether I watch one hour a day or hundreds of hours a month. So how does that work? I mean, I assume that plays into part of the, the the back-end deals on this, but I also look at it from the, the platforms of how can they be profitable if there's just a limited income? What 
if they have to continue to lay out large amounts of money for original programming or buying these at a premium, there's only so many people that can be subscribers at one time. At, at what point does this model hit its breaking point where there's nobody more to subscribe and their, their revenue is, is capped out? That's a great, great question. Uh, and, and that will be played out as well. Um, part of that, though, is you think of it like a gym membership where yeah, a lot of people have gym memberships. Some of them go to the gym regularly. Some of them go once or twice a week. Some never, but they still pay for the gym membership yeah. uh, monthly. So there's people that are on Netflix constantly. There's people that have the membership to Netflix and and watch occasionally. Uh, it's it's sort of that 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 uh, business model. Uh, when when the thing about Netflix they need is they have to have a lot of content because the people who are on it a lot, they need to have reason to stay on it, right? Uh, I was talking to some friends a while back and was saying that at some point, and I and now we're starting to see streamers do this, at some point, instead of releasing an entire season at one time, they'll start releasing three or four at a time, get you hooked, then weekly start releasing more to keep you coming back. Cause they, you know, you, you can binge watch a show on a weekend and then, you know, that's, then you're, then you're done. Then you, <laughs> if there's nothing else on there, you're really interested in coming back for, you might not come back, but if they can keep you engaged, the more they can keep you engaged, uh, the better. So I think you're going to see a lot more of that as well, releasing a few episodes and then each week more just to keep people coming back. Just the same model that networks do and, you know, HBOs and things like that. Yeah, kind of finding ways to trickle things out. I, I mean, and I know some places are playing with that right now, like Disney Plus is trying the weekly model as opposed to dumping everything at once just to kind of try that and see how that keeps their retainership. There's only so many series you can produce and, and have yeah. out there. So once you're, you kind of run through those, you, know, you like I said, you could binge watch a show in a weekend. So I think that's a smart model. I think that um, maybe in the future, they'll start going to the AVOD model or having an option of that uh, so that people can kind of watch on on demand uh, and not have to pay the monthly fee, especially as more and more platforms become available. There's only so many subscriptions people want. Uh, so so yeah. AVOD is definitely going to become uh, stronger and stronger. And uh, the, the thing about you know Netflix is is the gold standard right now. They're the big, they're the big company. And, uh, I think will be for some, for, for a while. However, they're the one company that really doesn't have a large conglomerate behind them. You know, Amazon does, Apple does, HBO, I mean, Disney, I mean, Disney's massive, right? Hulu. So, uh, you know, I, like you were saying, at what point does, do they cap out on, on subscriptions and, you're just kind of, but still spending the money. I, I don't know. I don't know when that is, I, or or if it is. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, obviously, it's something that pay cable was doing, you know, decades ago, right? I mean, HBO was producing. Well, I guess not initially. They weren't producing content right away, but eventually, I, I guess they hit a point where they said, "Okay, hey, we have enough paying customers right now. We can finally start producing some of our own content, and and we're able to get stuff." Out. Actually, I don't. Yeah, I guess they. I don't know what they started producing first and TV shows, or I think they actually produced some movies in the I think it was movies 80s first, and, 90s, and then they yeah. started with the shows and saw that that was really yeah. successful. And, and again, they, they would have them weekly instead of it all be at once, as we all yeah. remember and know. And 
I like being able to watch a bunch of episodes at once, but I also kind of miss the, uh, <laughs> you know, being excited for Sunday night, the new episodes coming out and, you know, you're sitting in front of the TV waiting for it. Um, uh, so yeah, I think, I think it's still kind of the wild west out there and it remains to be seen how all this shakes out. Well, it's, it's interesting as we start talking about original content from some of the studios like HBO, um, and, and Amazon, there's several films that we've reviewed on, on the podcast that are distributed by Amazon. And so that's the only place you can get them is Amazon prime. There's, there's no option to buy a DVD or Blu-ray physical media is not a choice for you. So you, if you want to see that movie, you have to maintain your subscription. So that's another way I see that they've hooked somebody in is if this is the only place you can watch it. Well, if you want to have access to it, you've got to keep your subscription up so that you have access to that. And knowing that again, that gets into even the movies that you haven't, you know, pretended to 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 own through purchasing them but you're they just make available as a subscriber to their service knowing that if you want to see you know the report you you have to see it right there on amazon that's the only place to get it as exclusive content so that gets into other areas of you know sort of hooking in the the consumers in that but then i think again it comes to the the filmmakers and you know everybody that you know counts on that box office if if going straight as we start to see more films getting picked up by Amazon that, you know, had potentially been theatrical releases. What does that mean for, for the filmmakers, for that industry on the creative side of, of knowing that that's an entirely different negotiation? We don't have box right. office. We don't have a target, even a measure of success, which is another piece that's interesting because we don't have, oh, this, you know, hit over a hundred million on opening weekend. It went straight to Amazon Prime. Nobody knows how successful this movie is anymore. There's no bragging oh. rights on number one in the box office anymore you're exactly right and and if part of that um negotiation on the back end deal is well if it has a certain amount of views you get this and you get some amount of views gets that well that would mean that they'd have to open up their their books right so that everybody can see it and i'm not sure they're willing to do that yet uh, so so it might just be as don was saying buyouts that they that they just buy it out outright it, I've, I've even seen uh, on social media i'm sure all of you have uh, you're following an actor or an actress or, or director or whatever. And they post their movie was number one on Netflix that week, right? That's the bragging rights. Instead of number one in the box office, <laughs> it's number one on Netflix. Right. Uh, it's, so it's just a really interesting, interesting thing. It also ties in just a bit as, you know, and it's slightly off topic, but right now we don't know what the state of cinema is in the United States. Um, you know, Cinemark's filed for bankruptcy. AMC just averted bankruptcy. We don't know coming out of COVID exactly who's going to survive and how the traditional theatrical market is going to play out. And so people are hedging bets like the universal deal with, uh, they do it with AMC, I think where they can do day and date release just to cover themselves or, you know, they wait a week mm-hmm. and then, then uh, after a week in the theaters, it can, it can come out on the streaming service. Uh, it's all changing. And, you know, we're hoping that traditional theaters can stay in business when they've been closed for a year and reopen and be great because no matter what you have at your house, it's not, it's not the same as going to, uh, a theater with a full sound system and, you know, an IMAX screen or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have to see how that plays out. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's going to be just like the change from when we started with Betamax and suddenly you could uh, 
save things and watch them at home and everybody had to change all of their contracts, we're going at sort of at that tipping point right now where it may all become streaming and there may not be theatrical anymore or very, very limited theatrical. Right. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, uh, Scott, as you, as you said, we just kind of roll with it and uh, you, you address it in your licensing deal to the best you can. Crazy. It's just crazy to think where things could end up with all of this and yeah, how it's getting shaken around. Yeah, one thing that the uh, movie industry and entertainment industry is is great at is adapting. I have done it for almost 100 years, and they'll continue to do it. So however people watch content, the, the industry will adapt. Very true. And at the end of it all, I'll still have physical copies that I can <laughs> I can sell at my garage sale. <laughs> well, I, I got to ask you then. So speaking of physical copies, are you a Blu-ray or DVD person? You know, I, I'll, I'll buy Blu-ray if I can. Generally, I'll try to buy it where I can at least also get a digital copy. Um, if it's only available DVD, then I'll, I'll get it on DVD. Um, and sometimes I have to buy it overseas because it's not available in my region. And so I buy, you know, different reason, regions for my region free player. <laughs> I, I do miss them. I do miss the, the DVD collections, you know, going over to someone's house and. I would always go straight to their DVD collection because you can kind of get a sense of someone. Or I could just by looking at it. Are they, you know, you have an action movie along with a romantic comedy. All right. Well, you got some depth to you. I see. Or is it just all horror? You know, it's, which are great. <laughs> right. You know, um, it, it's always, it's always fun to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. it's, it's interesting because, um, there is, is it, what is it? Movies anywhere, which is one of these sort of digital storehouses online for movies has sort of. I think it may still be in beta. They were testing out something called Screen Pass, which is where you could loan a digital copy of a movie to somebody that is also to a friend on the service for uh, basically it's like giving them a rental. They get it for, I think, 48 or 72 hours because that's that was the one thing that sort of bound you with, you know, if I bought a digital copy, I couldn't loan it to Andy. I, I could hand him my copy of a Blu-ray and say, oh, you've got to check out this movie. And they could make the rounds, you know, through Circle mm-hmm. of Friends. Whereas now with the, the screen pass, it seems like the first step towards trying to bridge that, you know, and not, of course, all movies are eligible for this. It's uh, clearly some studios that they've worked out a deal where they would allow people to transfer. But I see that there's, there's steps being taken to, to bridge that gap. Uh, but I will always tell Andy that, uh, the, that he doesn't I mean, and Donald, maybe you could speak to this because this because you, you've got some background in, in books. I heard you say when I buy a book, I'm not buying a license for that. Correct. I know I don't own the copyright, but that's something I can I can I can do things with that that I can't do with with movies. I can I can read that out in public and and I can't show a movie in public and, and charge. Well, you, you, I, you, can, you can show a movie in public if you're not charging for it. Oh, if I'm not charging for it. OK, um, but um, a book. Yes, you can read it. You can give it away. You can do all sorts of things with it. You can sell it to somebody. You've got a signed copy from some author and you want to go make some money off it. Go sell it. But there isn't a license with that. There is just the physical copy that you buy, and it doesn't give you the right to go edit it and then send an edited copy out as the book. Um, you don't get to take it to your print shop and run off 500 copies and give them away. Um, copyright allows you certain things, and there are things that you can't do. 
Uh, it's easier with a book because it's a lot harder to play with. With a digital copy, yes, you can try and do things, but think of it as, say, the Academy screeners that go out every year. Mm-hmm. They're all watermarked, uh, and they're intended for only the Academy member uh, to view. And every year you hear one or two stories about somebody who loaned it to a family friend or gave it away, and all of a sudden they got caught. And typically there's one or two people a year that say, you know, you're in danger of being kicked out of the academy because you gave away this film and it wasn't intended to be given away. So again, in general terms, they were given a license for them to watch it themselves. Mm-hmm. And so they could then view it and vote on it. And if they are abusing that by doing something other than what, and generally it's a big disclaimer at the beginning of all the screeners and the whole nine yards, if they're doing something other than that, then there are consequences. And that was the same. Uh, I think Redbox got into trouble for uh, doing things uh was it Redbox? Somebody was uh, censoring films uh, to release oh. a more Christian version of whatever oh, film yes, it was. No. Yes, yeah. That, that, yeah, I don't know if it was Redbox, but I do remember yeah. that the stories yeah, about that company because yeah. it was the, the. I think the the approach was you bought a copy of the movie and then you gave them permission to alter your version of the copy that they then allowed you to access through the system. So that that was the the I think the legal hoops they tried to get through. And and yeah. they lost on that because you don't have the right to alter it. Right. You know, even the licenses say for an R-rated film being sold to general television and not necessarily cable where things are a little looser, mm-hmm. generally all of those contracts have in there the right to uh to modify uh, either screen size or uh perhaps to a certain extent censorship to make sure it fits broadcast standards. Uh, you'll always find that sort of disclaimer if you're watching a movie on an airplane. Sure. They almost always say it's, this has been modified to, to fit the little screen and they may or may not have taken out the nudity or the altar of violence or whatever. So it could be more of a family entertainment bit, but that's all in the license that they've received permission to do that. But with a book, since there's no license, I could I could alter or censor my own copy of a book for my own purposes, and that would be okay. If I objected to content in Harry Potter before my kids read it, I could go censor that book, but I couldn't censor the movie, alter the movie that I, I bought on Blu-ray or DVD to present them with the version that I wanted to edit myself. Well, because that is your copy. And okay. so you have the right to do with that copy a limited number of things, but certainly Xing right, parts yes. out is something you yeah. can do. Uh, you couldn't walk into Barnes and Noble with your right. magic marker and X out <laughs> every <laughs> copy right. that they had in the bookstore. Right. Uh, that's a little beyond because you don't right. own those books. Right. So a book, I have a copy that I could alter for my own personal use, but when I buy a Blu-ray, I'm buying a license that prevents me from making any alterations. Because I think this goes back to like when people wanted to do their their edits of Star Wars, you know, The Phantom Menace and wanted to edit out Jar Jar Binks. They, you, you couldn't make that version for yourself, even if that's the way you wanted to enjoy the movie, because it's a fixed content versus a book. I can alter content. You could probably rip it down onto your computer and and 
and put it into your editing software and cut out things you want to cut out and watch it there on your computer. But, uh, it's not as easy as, as grabbing a book and, you know, marking out a, a line or page. Wouldn't that be a violation of my license for that movie? That's a good question for Don. Is that a violation? If you're just watching it yourself when you, I guess you probably can't rip it down. That's probably it's in itself a violation. I'm um, guessing. Good, good thing Scott's not giving legal advice here. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, first of all, um, yes, there's probably something in the download that you have that would prohibit you from getting that far. However, they may, you know, most everything I think is sent that is locked to a certain extent uh, so that you're not going to go play with it. You can be creative, I suppose, and I've seen people make a film off the television, so to speak, or, you know, mm-hmm. video with their camera, uh, what essentially would be screenshots so they can play with it. You're getting sort of far afield into copyright as to, you know, potential fair use or parody or other things that you're doing. But generally speaking, you certainly can't make another copy to distribute. Uh, because you don't have the right to distribute because you're not the copyright owner. At best, the first sale doctrine says that after you've purchased something, you have a right to then sell it at the yard sale or however you're going to do it uh, after you've bought it. But uh, as far as ripping it apart, assuming you could get that far, if it stayed on your computer and nowhere else, you might be able to get away with that because... You know, in a practical world, the other issue is who knows. And if nobody knows, then, you know, the tree fell in the forest and nobody heard it. But again, whether that's really the wise thing to do and whether or not they have any sort of tracking software on there that sees where it's going uh, or watermarks, uh, you know, that kind of depends on what it is you're playing with. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting. So as long as I have a 35 millimeter print, I can I can <laughs> censor it as much as I want, as long as I play it only for myself. Well, I mean, exactly. you know, it, it, if, if your uh, projector is getting old enough that it rips a, a sell out every now and then and you have to tape it back together, well, you then you've edited it. That's, uh, that's true. <laughs> Good point. But, you know. Gone are the days of using uh, razor blades and uh, tape to edit films. I mean, you know, so true. Yeah, um, that that's how I learned. But uh, yeah. you know, at, an avid is new to me. Yeah. Well, it is a it is a whole new world, and uh, things are going to constantly be shifting. They've been shifting for the past hundred years, as you as you've pointed out, and they will continue to shift because. It is a very, uh, you know, it, it's a very interesting medium that has all sorts of constant evolving technologies that go along with it. It's been a really interesting conversation uh, chatting with you two about all of this. And, uh, you know, I think I'll still hold on to my physical copies for a little while longer, just in case. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. Um, but uh, Donald and uh, Scott, it was an absolute pleasure having you uh, join us here today to chat about all of this. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it, it was great, guys. Thank you all for uh, having us on. Steve, any last uh, any last thoughts or words? Are you gonna Are we still gonna duke it out over our physical versus digital copies? No, I you're <laughs> you're like I said, you're free to buy those things that'll be outdated. And you know, like I said, I have 
I have DVDs that get cloudy spots on them. They they're decaying. I have you know, I don't have a DVD player in the house anymore. I've got you know a, a Blu-ray, but I you know, I've I've also got you know a box of VHS tapes back here that I I'm trying to find a way. You know, for me, I I move forward knowing that there's going to be multiple formats that I can always move forward to. And I know you will buy star Wars and every single version of physical media that ever shows up on and that you're free to do that. Well, remember guys to, you know, not to settle this totally, but phonographs have come back into rage now. That is true. And and that's become the hottest way to listen to music. Uh, And the music purists would tell you there's nothing better than listening to it on a phonograph because you get to hear sort of the tenor of the music that gets muted out when you're listening to it digitally. So yeah. if you hold on to things long enough, they may well come back. If you don't lie, one, one last thing I just wanted to say is that, uh, you know, we're talking about all the, the platforms and digital media and all that, and people are, have their strong opinions one way or the other. I think it's actually, it's a great thing. It allows people access to, to films and shows that they never really would have had access to before, uh, whether it's here in the United States or foreign films or whatever the case may be. And it allows, you know, some of these, some of these platforms are taking risks that, that no one was taking in the last 10 years. And I think uh, on, on films and I, and I think that that's a great thing. It opens a lot of doors for the viewers uh, and filmmakers as well. And, uh, and the more platforms that start to open up, the more that, uh, those opportunities will open up. Definitely agree. I think I've I've started to see like short films showing up on Netflix and I'm like, there's, you would yeah. never find these out there. You know, maybe, yeah. you know, on, on HBO, you know, back in the day, they'd have short films, but knowing that people wouldn't, you know, go out and buy them directly, you know, on, even on Blu-ray, you know, it's a great outlet for filmmakers. There's more and more ways. I mean, I think we're in, it's just, we, we talk about this on the show all the time. There's so much great content out there. There's so many great ways to see it. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's just, okay, which streaming service do I not pay for this month? Because there's so many, <laughs> so many out yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I cut my cable bill, but I think uh, now with all the platforms, I'm going to get back to the same place I was Definitely. for a month with that. But it's such a, <laughs> a great opportunity that there's so much out there for people to see. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In the end, I think that's really what it boils down to is there's just so much content and it's, uh, it's thrilling to watch it. And uh, we'll just keep watching as this whole thing evolves. So again, uh, Donald and Scott, thanks so much. You guys, thank you guys. And Steve, it's been a pleasure. As always. And for everyone else, uh, you know, the next reel, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. I love the conversations that so many of our hosts have had on their shows. Steve and JJ on Trailer Rewind, Ray and Ocean on Silver Linings, even Tommy's short-lived No, No, Wait, Hear Me Out. And so many films they've discussed started out as a book, a play, or even a TV series. Well, now you can support our whole family of podcasts by using our new Originals page to buy the original source material used to inspire films covered on our shows. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these fantastic conversations. It's a wonderful way to support the show. Producing these podcasts week after week require a ton of work behind the scenes. 
If you'd like to help support our efforts, try using our originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy the book, play, video game, movie, etc. upon which the movie is based. Original material for trailer rewind movies like If Beale Street Could Talk, The Goldfinch, Aniara, or The Two Faces of January, or Silver Linings movies like Repo Men, which was based on the repossession Mambo. Plus, by using those links to buy books, Amazon and Apple show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals. It's a fantastic way to support the show and find a great book to read. That's right. Head over to thenextreel.com slash originals to find your next read and get started today. 